Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Nicholas Walton and today I'm talking to Matthew Carr, the author of Fortress Europe, Dispatches from a Gated Continent, which takes a good, long, hard look at the migration issues that seem to be the focus of political debate everywhere on the continent. So Matthew, thanks for joining me and can you kick us off with a few words about yourself and how you came to write the book? I'm sure, yeah. Well, um, I'm a journalist. I've been a freelance journalist for years. I lived in Spain uh, for nine years. I did a lot of pieces. When I lived there, I did a lot of stuff about, um, some stuff about immigration, but a lot of things about Spanish, Latin American issues. I do remember back in the early 90s, actually going to the French-Spanish border to see if the Schengen, the new Schengen border, the abolition of the border between, um, the formal abolition of the border between France and Spain, to see if that was actually working, that the border actually had disappeared. So I did that story. And um, then, and years later, um, I wrote a book called Blood and Faith, um, The Purging of Muslim Spain, which was about the expulsion of the um, of Moriscos, the so-called Moriscos, mm-hmm. the Muslim converts from Spain in the early 17th century. And oddly, I think that book kind of pointed me in the direction of um, Fortress Europe, really, because that particular episode was, a kind of, was an episode in early European state formation. Um, it was also an episode that involved the persecution of minorities um, generally and also particularly in the case of um, the fact that these people were former Muslims, the Moriscos, before they were finally expelled, all 300,000 of them, um, in uh, 1609, 1614. So when I was thinking about the book I wanted to write after that, I, in the conclusion to that book, I had actually started to talk about... Um, Islamophobic issues in contemporary Europe, some comparisons without overstretching it too far. And um, the, the idea of doing a book about, um, about European borders and European immigration policy just seemed a logical step. I'm also very interested in kind of like hybrid spaces, um, geographical and cultural spaces, a long-term interest I've had. Um, the idea that particular physical spaces can become um, sort of melting pots and dynamic spaces, as well as um, hard frontiers, and I was interested in exploring that kind of contradiction throughout the book. Mm. And that's really how it happened. Okay. Uh, the result is a, is a terrific book because it deals, as I said, with such a, a hot-button issue. And it goes right up to the, uh, you know, to the front line of the issue. You go to places in, uh, in Ukraine. You go down to the, uh, you know, the, the, the southern frontier, I suppose you'd call it, uh, just across the, uh, the, the, the very short stretch of sea to uh, northern Africa. You go to the Greek-Turkish border and uh, you go down to places like Ceuta and Melilla, which are the... Uh, the Spanish outposts in on the northern coast of Morocco. So you really get that 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 close up uh, picture of what's happening with migration uh, in Europe and, and a lot of the people trying to get in here and, and what happens to them as people. But you also have a very good look at the very, very complex architecture that everything is put within. You mentioned Schengen when you were talking about Spain there. And that's a very important concept that I suppose we've got to we've got to unpack all those bits and pieces. So uh, I, I suppose that the way to do this is to is to look at the European Union um, and look especially at the fact that uh, if you go back a few years, 2004, you have the expansion of, uh, of, of the, the European Union to 25 members. And this took in 10 countries, included places like uh, Malta and Cyprus down in, in the Mediterranean, but also significantly went into the old Soviet empire in, in uh, 
Eastern Europe all the way into the borders of what used to be the Soviet Union itself. And this, this moved the whole of the borders of, uh, of the European Union into, uh, shall we say, completely new territory. Uh, and then since then, there's been uh, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, and then Croatia have also joined. Uh, and at the same time, you've had the, the establishment of something called the, the, the Schengen Zone. So if you bring all of those uh, together, can, can you make a little bit of sense uh, of, of the type of issues that this has all brought up? Sure. Well, I should say, first of all, actually, partly connected to what the question you asked before, but also leading into this, is that one of my interests in the book, it seemed to me that um, in order to kind of understand European immigration policy, um, the kind of transformation that's taken place since the Cold War, although the architecture was already being put in place before then, the best place to observe this, it seemed to me, was to actually go to the physical spaces where these policies were being manifest. Because another thing, another of the things I was struck by before I wrote that book, and it became even more striking during it, but I was always I was struck by the fact that once upon a time we didn't really talk about borders that much. Um, if you think back to the Cold War era, we did talk about closed borders then. And closed borders were seen as a kind of anathema in the um, in the in the free world in the West because they were closed to keep the people in. Um, mm-hmm. To some extent, they were also closed to keep certain things out. But um, when we talked about the Berlin Wall, when when Ronald Reagan delivered his famous declaration saying tear down this wall to Gorbachev, um, basically he was um, that that resonated that idea because we thought then that walls, hard borders and so on was something to be got rid of. And in the aftermath of the Cold War, you may remember there was a great deal of rhetoric about a borderless world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was struck by that contradiction that rhetoric, a borderless world, open borders, open frontiers, and so on, and the fact that um, that period since the end of the Cold War has been one of the most, um, uh, some of the hardest border regimes in the world have been implemented, particularly in Europe, but also in other places as well. Um, In fact, the the architecture for that, as you suggest, was already in place through the um, Schengen Agreement, signed in 1986, before the end of the Cold War. Um, The Schengen Agreement was the result of various meetings. One of the dimensions of it was various meetings between um, European Justice and Home Office officials who basically um, were dealing with, as they they contemplated the expansion of the European Union, obviously they didn't know exactly how much it was going to expand then. Um, They, but they they basically had the idea that if you were going to be a member of the European Union, um, that would be to some extent meaning it would mean that you would forfeit some of your previous national immigration policy and that the European Union would take on responsibility for it through the Schengen Zone. So you had this contradictory dynamic. On one hand, the Schengen Zone allowed free movement of people between all the countries that were members of the Schengen Zone um, to a kind of uh, almost unprecedented degree in, in modern European history, at least. And that process had to be accompanied by a persistent and consistent hardening of the external frontiers and also a new dimension of what border control actually meant. It wasn't just physical physical borders at key places um, where Europe intersected with the third world or with poorer regions of the world. It was also um, pushing border control um, into a new kind of extraterritorial uh, phenomenon so that you would actually have immigration officials working far from Europeans borders into countries that were seen as possible source countries for immigration and also inside Europe you have this developed concept that some people call the internal border in which basically new bureaucratic regulations were introduced new forms of control to separate migrants and asylum seekers from the European population and make it easier to deport them when the time came so you had this whole process which has really been going on ever since then, of hardening and softening going on simultaneously. And when, the, when with the expansion of the European Union in the, in the early 21st century with the former Soviet 
bloc countries included, the same process was extended to those countries too. So, so, so give us an idea, uh, who is in the Schengen zone and who, crucially, is not in the Schengen zone? Um, the Schengen zone has about 450 um, million people in it. Um, all the members of the European Union, except... Um, now you're testing my memory now, Nicholas. Because, <laughs> I mean, um, there are some... The contradiction of the Schengen Zone, there are some countries that are in the European Union but are not in the Schengen Zone, a handful, like Norway, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, all, all of the new um, Accession 8 countries are in it, have become in it since, um, since they joined, since they met the Schengen qualifications. Um, the Schengen Zone includes Greece. It includes... Uh, Spain, Italy, they were among the first members after the Cold War. It pretty much includes all, all the European, member, um, European Union member states, with the exception of one or two. Um, excluded are countries that are not in the European Union and which are basically not seen as part of the European polity. And excluded, essentially, is everyone else. And the Schengen Zone has had positive effects for everyone else on one level in that it facilitates immigration throughout Europe. For example, if you get hold of a three-month Schengen visa, you can um, travel anywhere in Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier to travel if you're um, documented than it was before. If, on the other hand, you're not considered legal, you're not documented, it makes it much harder because basically you have an enforcement process that is at least they're attempting to make it um, homogenised throughout the Schengen zone members. Mm-hmm. And uh, among the ones that aren't members of the, uh, of the, the Schengen zone are, are Britain and Ireland. Mm. Uh, yeah. Very yeah. importantly, uh, yes. because that, very, that, that, that yeah, feeds very... into the whole argument, uh, well, into the whole political debate, because uh, there is that feeling of island exceptionalism, I suppose you might call it, uh, over yeah. on the western edge of the continent. Um, but but just to go back to to the architecture that that this is all set up. I remember when I was the BBC's guy over in Warsaw, and it was two thousand and one, two thousand and two. So it was before the uh, the big uh, expansion of the European Union that the the, the ten countries joining in two thousand and four. Uh, and one of the most important things that I I covered was the upgrading of border facilities. And I remember going over to um, the Lithuanian border with uh, with uh, Belarus and the Polish border with um, with Ukraine, and there was an enormous amount of money and effort, uh, technology, manpower, expertise, whatever you want to say, are being thrown at these borders because, in effect, they were going to be the borders of of the political unit, the you know the the uh, super state that was the European Union. Um, but uh, one of the things that also happened when the European Union expanded uh, eventually was that there was a lot of migration within the European Union. Uh, you don't cover that so much in your um, in your book, obviously, uh, but at the same time that has fed into the 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 political debate about uh, who should be allowed where uh, across what are ostensibly national borders. Uh, Why was it that you decided not to include too much of that uh, intra-European Union um, migration in your book? I will talk, yeah, I would, referring to, just before I talk, touch on that, I'd just sure. like to raise the issue that you raised um, about Britain and Ireland not being members of the Schengen, and which is a very important thing, actually, because um, Britain basically didn't want to become involved in the Schengen um, process completely, essentially because British immigration officials didn't trust the ability of the European Union to enforce um, 
border controls the way Britain wanted. So Britain has partly um, it, it gained some partial access, for example, to the Schengen data system, which, among other things, includes the names of uh, asylum seekers who've been registered when they first came into Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and that is an interesting contradiction, actually, because um, Britain shares all the essential values of the um, Schengen Agreement, the whole idea of hard borders and so on. It's simply that they don't trust um, the ability of um, the European Union to enforce them. And in terms of um, in terms of uh, why I didn't um, place too much emphasis on inter-European immigration was because at the time when I wrote the book, it wasn't quite the issue that it has actually become. Um, it, I mean, it's mainly become a, a hot political issue in the UK, in fact, more than in other countries. Um, in the countries that I went to um, when I was researching my book, the issue of... Um, Eastern European migration was rarely raised. It wasn't part of the national debate in Greece, for example. It wasn't part. Of, it wasn't really um, significant in Spain, or in Italy. This was this was really just on the borderline of the crisis before the financial. Well, it was just after the financial crisis had hit, and before its effects had really been felt. And um, the main, as far as a political issue was concerned, um, on the right and also to the centre right, the main preoccupation was immigration from outside Europe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me, also, in terms of trying to understand how the European Union was attempting to define itself um, in opposition to the other, um, that was the kind of crucial issue for me. Because I, I feel that um, in terms of understanding European, Europe's hard borders, they were developed in order to create a, free, a, mo- a movement of free space, uh, a, free, a space of free movement to people within Europe, but also by stopping people coming in from outside. And I was interested in why they were stopping people and who they were stopping. Um, if I was to write the book now, say, or if I was to write um, a new introduction to it or anything like that, I probably would talk more about inter-European immigration because that has become an issue. But once again, particularly in the UK, and I still don't think so much in other European countries, despite what um, our government is saying. Mm. Well, one one aspect of that that I remember covering when I'm, when I was back in Poland over a decade ago was the fact that, uh, and and this speaks to the whole idea that there's various degrees of movement are allowed. Certain borders are softer and certain borders are harder. If you look at the agreement that the uh, that the various countries had when they joined the European Union, uh, there was also that as, as you've just mentioned the freedom to work within the European Union or whatever and travel around. That freedom to work in different countries was initially um, restricted and Britain uh, along with a couple of other countries made the decision to allow the you know that these these new countries uh, joining from Central and Eastern Europe uh, allowed them free access to the British labor market and so they had a much more um, I, I, I suppose upfront um, experience of uh, large uh, numbers of migrants coming up co- coming over to the british uh, labor market uh, and and settling uh, if if only temporarily in britain maybe that maybe that's why that's so uh, uh, such an active issue there but the yes the, well, true but on the other hand nicholas if you think uh, yeah. germany also has had, had a huge a very large influx of um of polish workers as it always has mm-hmm. if you go back to the 19th century um, Germany was receiving large amounts of Polish workers. It was one of the reasons why Bismarck um, kicked a lot of them out in the late 19th century because he thought um, parts of Germany were becoming Polonized, as he put it. Yes. Um, that whole debate about um, Polonization and so on and was not even hasn't even really been seriously raised except by the far right in Germany over the last few years. Mm. So it's very much I see it as very much a British issue actually. This, right. um, and, and what you say is partly true. There were there were large numbers of um, Eastern European migrants coming in and also um, the Labour government decided to um, basically raise the uh, accession 
controls earlier, partly because the British labour market was booming at the time and it was seen as a positive thing, something we often forget now when we're talking about the whole Eastern um, European immigration issue in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get back on to the external borders of the European Union themselves, because that, that's, they're the main ones that, that are focused on in the book. Where do most of the migrants come from that are coming into the European Union or trying to get into the European Union? Well, this constantly shifts. That's the, this is one of the um, contradictions of the whole hard border um, regime, as I call it, is that um, basically, uh, if we look back over since the early 90s, um, basi basically routes or points of entry have moved from one to the other, often depending to, depending to some extent on whether or not those um, particular border points have been hardened. And also depending, and this is a crucial fact often le left out of the debate about um, so-called uh, uh, migration management, depending on external factors that are taking place outside Europe. Mm -hmm. There is this idea, there's this idea, I, I, I would say it actually is a fantasy really, that you can actually create this um, seamless membrane around the whole of Europe that is able automatically to allow people in who are considered um, viable, um, bona fide as the, um, as the um, immigration speak puts it, and exclude those who aren't. Um, that never happens, really. I mean, in the early 90s, Spain was the main, was the main route. Um, people were coming in from North Africa in the, in the famous Pateras, the, um, the small boats um, that used to cross the Strait of Gibraltar and other parts of uh, the Mediterranean. And that was the main entry point. That border was then technologized um, through the Seabay system, the external vigilance system, a high-tech um, vigilance system which enabled the Civil Guard to use radar and cameras to actually monitor the strait. So that cut that down um, to a large extent. But then it shifted. It shifted to Italy and it shifted to Greece. Malta has also become a point of entry at some point. It seems that, um, uh, and to some extent this is dependent on whether um, the organizations, individuals are helping to facilitate this process of movement, see a possible opening. And to some extent it's simply created by um, what is taking place elsewhere. For example, Calais has been a constant festering sore politically in the UK for the last um, 14 odd years, really. Um, when I was there, about the last time I was there was about three years ago. At that time, there was a tiny trickle of Syrians in Calais. The first visit I made had been about a year and a half, two years before that. There weren't any Syrians in Calais. Nobody had even heard of Syrian migrants in Calais. So uh, obviously, you're dealing then with the Syrian civil war, which basically, as everyone knows, became far more catastrophic over the last three years. And so uh, you're getting large numbers of Syrians there. Once upon a time, um, Libya seemed to have been almost sealed off mm -hmm. as regarding um, Italy, the, Italy, the agreement signed between the European Union and Gaddafi, and particularly between Italy and, uh, and um, Gaddafi. Now we see what's happening. We see um, more migrants coming across the Mediterranean than did even at the, high, the previous high points in the early 90s. And they're also dying in much larger numbers. So in other words, they're constantly shifting, really. Greece, when I was there, that was about uh, 2010, 2011. At that time, that was the main entry point, because Italy had stopped being the main entry point. Now, now Greece, not so many people are coming in through Greece, but more people are coming in through Italy, and so on. And that's how it works. You mentioned the Arab Spring, uh, certainly in the context of, uh, of uh, the, the, the ongoing conflict in Syria and the situation in Libya. How much of a problem is the situation in Libya? Because it's not so much that Libya has had political turmoil. It's the fact that the Libyan political turmoil has, has created the kind of political vacuum that has led to lots of other people, including from Syria, from Eritrea, from a lot of countries further south in Africa, 
being channeled through them. It's opened up the the, the possibility of organised crime networks being able to to use uh, Libya. How much of a problem is, is things like that? Are things like that? Well, I think in order to understand the problem that it is from the European point of view, it's also worth understanding the situation that prevailed before Gaddafi was overthrown, which basically, um, through the collusion of the European Union, and particularly through the Berlusconi government, Libya had become a kind of um, clandestine uh, concentration camp for migrants, basically. Um, migrants coming from sub-Saharan Africa into Libya were routinely locked up in in. Uh, detention centres that as far as access was able to determine because Gaddafi didn't allow very much access into those centres but there was some. He wouldn't allow the UN, UNHCR to function for example. Um, he, I think it had a perfunctory office in Tripoli which wasn't allowed to do very much. So basically Gaddafi was part of the kind of so-called offshore border migration regime in which uh, in which migrants were treated appallingly but in ways that were not visible to Europe um, the Berlusconi government had no problem with that at all. In fact, they, they signed a semi-secret agreement, the so-called pushback agreement in 2009, which enabled um, Italian ships um, who found migrant boats crossing the Mediterranean to basically um, push them back um, into Libyan control, into Libyan territorial waters, without accessing um, their appeals for asylum. Those migrants would then be put through this uh, detention deportation system. Um, hundreds of thousands of migrants were deported each year from Libya, who have basically been trying to get into Europe. These were these were in the good days, um, the so-called good days, when they, where, with the agreement between Gaddafi and the European Union. Since then, um, that system of control has broken down, clearly, for the reasons that you mentioned, because there is um, a situation of political chaos in Libya at the moment. The central government hardly functions. That means that that huge coastline that, Euro that the European Union was working hard with Gaddafi to control, the huge Libyan coastline I'm referring to, is much more open now than it was. And that coincides with a rise in the number of, um, of refugees and asylum seekers coming from Syria and other countries. Um, because a lot of Egyptians, for example, have also come um, partly as a result of developments in the Arab Spring. A more recent development has been a number of Gazans, Gazan Palestinians, have been um, coming. Uh, one, in one of the worst, I think it was back in September when they had that um, one, of, one of the many drownings that have taken place this year. About 300 migrants drowned. Most of them are Gazan Palestinians, apparently. So, um, so yes, obviously that system of control is broken down. But then that raises the question of what kind of um, the, the ethical and moral validity of that system in the first place as a means of as a means of control. Personally, I don't think it had any. I would have liked if I'd had time to actually have gone to Libya in those days and see what I could do in terms of investigative reporting. But in the end, budget and time ran out, and I couldn't mm -hmm. do it. But it was a cru it was a crucial component of um, the European Union's um, border control systems, as was Tripoli, uh, as was um, Tunisia, sorry. And what about this, uh, another crucial question when it comes to migration, including uh, through all of these pinch points uh, uh, along Europe's borders, the balance between economic migration and actually genuine refugee seeking, uh, refugee status seeking. Um, how does that play out? Because this is one of the, obviously, one of the perennial questions, because... It's obvious at one end who's an economic migrant and who is seeking refugee status uh, with with some form of validity to it. But there is an enormous area between uh, where, for instance, if someone is fleeing from a particular zone of instability where they could run into a lot of trouble, therefore claim um, claim refugee status. Those places are also often very desperately poor and they there is a... a 
certainly an element of those people trying to uh, seek a better life for themselves. Absolutely, absolutely right. And um, it's very, it's not nearly as easy as people think to establish those distinctions. I mean, with the with the with Europe, the, with the European Union in particular, because um, there's a real, there's a very interesting contradiction at the heart of um, European um, migration policy, which um, I think is worth raising, which is that because the European Union has made human rights um, one of the defining principles of European identity, of the, of the identity of the new European Union, and that was, that's, that's been a constant ever since um, the, the 1950s, really, the idea that, that Europe was not only an economic space um, for free movement of capital and labour, it was also a human rights space. And that meant that the European Union has um, basically never... Um, and never would, and nor has any any government within the European Union rejected um, the Geneva Convention on Refugees and the various other treaties that, um, that regulate uh, the treatment of refugees worldwide. It never would. But what it has done in practice is try to ensure in the li- that, that basically people who want uh, asylum can't reach European territory. And that's the crucial thing, because if you can't reach European territory, you can't apply for asylum, because usually there's no other way to do it in Europe anyway, except to actually get here, because the embassies won't allow, um, for the most part, won't allow people to become, um, to apply for refugees in the, in consulates and embassies in some of the countries where people are coming from. And so um, there's this idea that people have of the refugee that um, if you're a refugee, what you should do is just simply leave the country where someone was going to persecute you, shoot you, or persecute you because of your gender, because of your politics and so on, just simply sit in a camp somewhere in the desert. And that qualifies you as a genuine refugee. You don't need any more than that. But that's never been the case in the history of, throughout the 20th century, the whole development of the refugee as an exceptional category of migrant who could, in certain circumstances, have a kind of moral case for crossing borders, as opposed to purely economic migrants who supposedly don't have a a moral case. Throughout that whole period, which really began just after World War I, refugees have never been like that. Um, we have a false concept of the refugee of, of this kind of purely persecuted person who just sits in a camp. But actually, most people, no matter what happened to them in their countries, once they leave, they want to improve their lives and change their lives. And it may well be that they want to study, that they want to work, that they need to work, that they have relatives back in the country where they came from. And um, therefore, they're looking for work in order to try and help their families um, and so on. And so, you know, I think... Um, this kind of constant emphasis on the genuine refugee, you rarely hear defined what a genuine refugee is. You'd almost have to think that a genuine refugee is somebody who a, who a guard somewhere had a pistol pointed to their head and they managed to get away from that pistol and that makes them genuine. But it's not necessarily as straightforward as that. And by imposing that category of the genuine refugee, it becomes actually a means of excluding rather than accepting people quite often in practice. That's yes, what I, found, anyway. I, I can imagine that because after all, if you look at the figures, the, the great balance of, uh, of people who can be termed as political refugees worldwide are in places like Iran and Pakistan and so on. So they, they, they actually conform more to the stereotype of somebody who's just got out of where it is, wherever it is that they were in trouble and they're just stuck there. And the ones that actually make it, make it to Europe, by definition, have, have often had to do several other steps, such as be able to uh, maybe hook up with a network that got them there, whether they were as a criminal network or whatever, or actually invest in the transport to get them to the borders of Europe, get across, for instance, the Mediterranean or, or whatever, uh, or, or cross the, uh, the Polish or Slovakian border and get into Europe. So it, it muddies the water. But the other thing it does muddy, of course, is the political discourse that surrounds um 
that surrounds um, uh, the the whole migration um, issue in in Europe. Uh, one way in which it muddies it is that there is the um, there is the the convention that basically whichever country you you land in and you declare refugee status in that country there then has a great deal of responsibility for actually deciding what happens with you and of course the second thing is it goes back to this you know at what point is it economic migration and that that means that that's some of the area where there's been political pressure which we need to talk about soon because it's such a, a hot button issue but can you first talk about the first aspect of that the uh, having yeah. uh, the, the country that you first land in has to deal with you yeah that's a, that's a um, a terrible flaw, um, or if you will, depending on which way you look at it, it's a terrible flaw in the um, European Union's migration uh, regime because what actually happens in practice is through, um, through legal instruments such as the Dublin Convention, um, all asylum seekers are expected to apply for asylum in one country only. In theory, this was developed, um, this idea was developed in order to prevent the so-called phenomenon of asylum shopping in which um, one person would apply for in one place, be rejected, and then just go to another country and apply there. But what's actually happened in practice is the first country that most asylum con- seekers come to is usually the first physical country they reach. So what's actually happened is that the, the, um, the, new, Euro- the new countries that now constitute the, um, the front line, if you like, of, of Europe's immigration campaign, countries like Italy, Greece, Malta, and Spain, they become the countries responsible for processing asylum appeals even though um, the people who are making those appeals may not even want to live in those countries, and even though those countries may not have the proper facilities or training in order to deal with them. It's something that UNHCR has dealt with a lot. UNHCR does a lot of uh, capacity-building programs, particularly in Greece. Greece has a disastrous asylum um, screening system. Basically, in Greece, the people who, who decide whether or not you can get refugee status are policemen, usually, in the first instance. And until very recently... Most of them had no training at all and didn't even know anything about um, asylum law or the countries where the people came from and had no interest in accepting them, especially in, as they were obliged to actually, if they were going to give, grant them asylum, they were going to grant them asylum in Greece. And this is the problem. What actually happens in practice then is you have countries with very poor facilities and sometimes a quite um, a poor record in, uh, from a human rights perspective in dealing with asylum issues. Those countries, those frontline countries, carry the primary responsibility for enforcing um, the migration policies of countries a long way away from them, like the UK, like Germany, um, like France and Belgium, and so on. And this has created um, an ongoing uh, human rights disaster, really, in which you have, um, in Greece, you had hundreds of thousands of migrants trapped in Greece who didn't want to be in Greece, in a country that didn't want to have them. Um, and you, one of the consequences of that, obviously, not only, if that's not just because of migration, you had the rise of uh, Golden Dawn and a very, very um, racist, xenophobic um, political discourse, which was partly caused by Golden Dawn and partly was a consequence of their kind of their their ascent in the last few years. That was something also to do with the financial crisis, obviously, in the way that Greece was dealt with. But migration was a crucial part of it. And when I was there in Greece, you could just see that just beginning to happen. At that time, Golden Dawn was a tiny minority party that lots of people laughed at in Athens, but it was active on the streets. It was attacking migrants, it was attacking asylum seekers and so on. And since then, well, we know we've seen what's happened. It's become a major political party in Greece, something that would once have been unimaginable. And to some extent, this is the consequence of the Dublin Convention system, which has basically allowed, forced these countries to take primary responsibility rather than the countries, um, the richer countries quite often, 
where migrants actually want to go to. Yes, uh, it, it would come as no shock to anyone listening to this that the uh, the countries on the southern fringes of Europe or, or perhaps the, the, the southeastern fringes of Europe that have to deal with the most are the ones who've suffered most in the financial crisis as well. So they've got less cash, fewer resources, exactly. etc. Um, mentioning Golden Dawn is an excellent way to get on to the uh, political implications because uh, uh, it's, it's not just real fringe parties like Golden Dawn, um, but... Uh, a, a great deal of, of, shall we say, much more mainstream parties have had to start grappling with the uh, the issue of immigration. Uh, in Britain, for instance, it, it's very apparent that the uh, the Labour Party, uh, the Conservative Party, both of them are actually having to come to formulate uh, their uh, position on immigration because poll after poll after poll suggests that it's still one of the most important things that decides who votes for which party. And uh, although it's absolutely nothing like Golden Dawn in its position, the rise of the uh, the United Kingdom Independence Party, UKIP, has certainly kept them on their mettle and threatened to take any votes from people who really believe that uh, a tougher line on immigration needs to be taken um, than the, the mainstream parties, if the mainstream parties aren't going to act at all. So h- how has this whole discourse uh, and the political pressures that it's brought out how how has that uh, uh, developed and is the does it all just go back as you suggest with golden dawn to the financial crisis and people being a little bit more aware of people who might take uh, scarce resources from them or, or is it far more deep-seated i think um that both both things are correct really in the different ways i think first of all we um, you know one of the things that i was very conscious of when i was writing my book um was that to bring to attention the fact that hostility to immigration has not just begun just because of the European Union and just because of the accession eight countries and just because of the Schengen zone and all the changes that have taken place in the last 20 or 30 years. If you look back um, at the UK in particular, but not necessarily in particular, the UK is one country, but other countries have done the same thing. Immigration from the third world in particular from former colonies has always been seen as something worrying and disturbing, um, not only to the far right, but to the centre right and even to the Labour Party in um, in the UK in the late 50s and 1960s. There's, I, can't, I can't really think of a time since the end of World War II in which there hasn't been a significant lobby that has argued there's too much immigration. Um, nowadays, that idea there's too much immigration seems more credible because the numbers have risen um, from Eastern Europe and so on. But if you go back to the 1980s, you can remember Margaret Thatcher talking about swamping, people being afraid of being swamped by migrants. If you go back to the 1960s, you can see um, overtly racist political campaigns, um, electoral campaigns in Birmingham and other places in which immigrant immigration was at the fore. I remember coming back to the UK from the Caribbean where I lived as a kid in 1967 to find dockers marching in support of Enoch Powell. Um, um, and so this has always been around. It's not something entirely new. What has changed is numbers have risen and also um, anti-immigrationism has, has acquired a new credibility mm-hmm. um, that it didn't necessarily have before. Um, once upon a time, um, words like racism, for example, one of the one of the familiar tropes in the kind of uh, right wing political discourse in the UK is the idea that um, you're not allowed to talk about immigration because if you do, you're racist. They say um, we've heard this from organisations like uh, Migration Watch. It's a tabloid um, cliche almost. And in terms of what, what's going on recently, we well we're dealing with different things really. We're dealing with a rise in numbers within Europe. We're dealing with the confluence of different events. The economic crisis, for example, has sharpened um, 
the uh, general tendency throughout Europe, because it's not only in the UK, to be hostile to to immigration, to regard immigration as something dangerous, threatening, um, as something that competes with local workers and so on. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, dishonesty about this debate, and also. Um, well, on, on the far right has always had its issues. It's always had its issues with immigration, which would mostly be concerned less with um, labour competition than with identity. With, um, and so we're seeing a kind of, on one level, a far right resurgence, which basically reaching back to that old tradition um, of identity and that certain kinds of immigrants threaten um, the essential essence, not so much of the race, because they don't you hear the word race anymore. We hear about the culture, the nation, and so on. And then we have um, uh, centre-right and centre-left governments um, realizing that their political position is threatened by this and responding to it with um, basically quite demagogic policies, in my opinion, and demagogic arguments which, uh, basically, which basically exaggerate the negative aspects of immigration and don't mention the positive aspects of it. For example, la the Labour government of the UK now is constantly apologizing for its so-called mistakes when it allowed the accession eight countries um, to come in and allowed um, Eastern immigration to rise quite quickly. But what they don't mention is that um, no one really complained about that then um, from an economic point of view. The British economy was doing really well. It needed labor. It needed that kind of flexible labor. There are all, by the way, there are all kind of issues about labor flexibility and about how immigration is managed, which is a, another thing altogether. But basically, as I see it, it was a largely positive phenomenon. Um, many migrants came when the, when the um, British economy began to contract, most of them left. So what is the problem? Um, the problem, as explained to us by the newspapers, by UKIP and so on, is that various things really, we are being, our, 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 our country is full, as if a country can actually be full and have a certain amount of people that can fit into a box, that they're competing and undercutting local labour, something that has not been proven um, nationally, although there are, is evidence, some evidence that is happening in some local areas. And so we have um, had something like 15 years, really, more or more, of a constant barrage of information about immigration, which has um, made the public much less willing to accept it than it once was. And yet when you look at polls, some of the polls and surveys that are being done, you, you see that um, the British public um, has, an, uh, has a concept of immigration that is not, doesn't match the reality. For example, there's a recent, I think it was a YouGov poll, that said that most, um, most, much of the British public believed the levels of immigration to this country was something like 30 or 40 percent. Um, the actual figure is nowhere near that. And the whole debate about immigration is a constant um, concoction of fears about what could happen in the future compared with inaccurate or dishonest statistics about what actually is happening in the present, mm -hmm. which ignores the fact that Britain and many other European countries need immigration and are going to need it. Um, according to many economists, for, for some time to come. So it's a kind of very, very self-destructive and sterile debate, which really is not taking us anywhere useful, in my opinion. Well, let, let, let's move this debate forward then. Uh, no one reading your book can be left in any doubt that you broadly think that, uh, that migration and immigration are generally good things. Uh, notwithstanding the amount of... Uh, you know, a, a fair bit of friction on the way. Sorry. No, I, I would say... That, that is my belief, mostly good things, but I also believe inevitable things, and that's another question altogether. Yes. I think that the, the, for better or worse, the kind of world we have created now, it's impossible to, um, how, to, to really maintain a hard border system without terrible human rights consequences and without negative consequences for the countries that are imposing those, um, those regimes. One of the things I tried to argue in my book, 
was that if you completely give yourself over as a country, as a government, towards this kind of um, very hard, um, tough um, migration management policies that are informed and shaped constantly by xenophobic fears about what could happen in the future, then you become, you shrink as a country, you shrink as a nation. This is a difficult argument to put over because it's not really an mm-hmm. economic argument, it's a moral argument. Um, yes. And I think you see the evidence of that, particularly in the UK now, where you have people just say, saying quite often some quite squalid things. We've seen it in the last few weeks with some of the declarations coming from um, from the government and also to some extent from the opposition. Um, not only does this fail to to formulate viable policies of how we can deal with this um, inevitability of immigration, it actually makes your country politically and morally quite an unpleasant place. And we've seen that in not only in the UK, in Greece, what we were talking about before with Golden Dawn. I mean, a, a party like Golden Dawn should be nowhere near the corridors of power. And it's actually a shameful thing for Greece which many Greeks recognise, actually, mm-hmm. that that has happened. So, Matthew, the, uh, the question I was going to ask is, given this, what can be done about it? And let's face it, it's not exactly a simple thing to be able to fix, even, no, if, you, if, even if you accept the principle that it's somewhat inevitable and broadly a good thing. It's a very, it's a very I mean, changing, changing the current um, political attitudes towards immigration is very, very difficult. It's um, it's uh, still a struggle that needs to be fought. I'd say it's one of the central political struggles of the early 21st century, really, and to some extent it's going to help define um, the p- kind of political order we're going to have in the next 20 or 30 years. It's very, very difficult. Um, it means having all kinds of arguments and discussion about um, the nation-state, about whether the, about the whole idea of homogenized identities, which is at the heart of the nation-state, it, it requires um, developing an entirely new relationship between, um, in, the, in the case of this, just keep it with the European Union, not some of the other countries where some similar things have been happening. With the European Union, it requires define, establishing a new relationship with uh, some of the migration-producing countries. And for me, the, the, you know, the, the heart of this principle should be how can we find ways to make migration beneficial, not only for us, but also for the countries that are producing migrants. And I think we need to think more, governments need to think more in, in these terms instead of always trying to work out um, what is pursuing what is basically an impossible task of stopping people coming. I think underneath the European Union, um, the people um, in charge of European migration policy don't even really believe that they can stop migration from the countries that they're trying to stop it from. They, they hope to manage it, as they put it, reduce it, slow it down, and so on. Um, and, you know, under, underpinning this whole... Um, policy is the fear that if we stop doing that, one day we'll just be completely overwhelmed, and there'll be no European Union anymore. There'll be and 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 and, and we'll completely just dissolve um, culturally and politically. Um, I think uh, we need to think through these things in a rational, calm, um, and sensible way, and we need to um, analyze and constantly. Um, attack the false arguments that, uh, and, and dishonest statistics that are being used to create a concept of immigration that is basically um, not accurate. So, so what you were saying before is yes, there's many, many different fronts people need to act on, depending on where they are in society. But you know, it, it's very it's essential for governments to not give in, um, to not when they see the rise of a party like UKIP. Um, the British government say, will say things like um, politicians will say, "Ah, oh, well, we have to respond to public concerns." about immigration and so on. It's interesting, in, in this country, public concerns about immigration are among the few concerns that the politicians actually do respond to. And um, they, this whole idea that um, you're somehow responding to legitimate concerns 
doesn't address the degree to which politicians themselves have helped create those concerns. So there's a kind of morbid dynamic going on between politicians, the media and the public in which each one reinforces the worst behavior of the other. And um, somehow we need to get out of that. And I'm not sure how to do it. I don't have any actual master plan. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. It, it is so complicated. And uh, as for that charge against politicians, I don't think that that's a charge that they've never faced before, that they that they feed off the debates that they then try and uh, pretend that they're solving. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, many thanks indeed for that. Uh, as I said earlier on, it, it, uh, it's a fascinating book that really takes you uh, into some of the human stories as well as some of the uh, all of the, the, the slightly more technical issues that I've just been discussing with, with Matthew. Uh, Fortress Europe Dispatches from a Gated Continent is the name of the book. Uh, So before you head off, uh, Matthew, I just have uh, one question to ask, uh, a question that I'm trying to ask at the end of all of the New Books in European Studies interviews, and that is, uh, do you have a favourite place in in Europe, a place, uh, a city, a town, a a village, a house or whatever? Um, Well, I saw lots of I saw every place I visited when I was writing that book, I find fascinating for different reasons, partly um, because of the current situation and partly because I was interested in the kind of historical background to it. Um, I think um, I lived in Spain for nine years and Spain remembers, remains in, in many ways my adopted country. And um, I would say that is the country where I feel most at home in Europe. I, um, I have a particular affection for Aragon, for, mm-hmm. the, um, for the Pyrenees, and the Aragonese Pyrenees in particular, um, it's a place I I really feel a great deal for and really feel at peace when I'm there. And actually can't, uh, I mean, Spain in general actually is a country in which I've been all over it for years and years. And yet, no matter how many times I go back there, I always find some new place that I hadn't um, heard of before, which I... Uh, which I find fascinating and interesting. So I would say, in a general general Spain, and particularly more recently, um, Upper Aragon in the in the Pyrenees. It's a corner of the country I've never seen, but uh, that's a great recommendation. It's not that visited. <laughs> yes, well, that's often one of the main reasons for going to visit a place. Uh, it makes them a lot better. Anyway, as I said, thank you very much indeed. It's a splendid book. Thank you for the interview on new books in European studies, and thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, Nicholas. Thank you. And that was my interview with Matthew Carr, the author of Fortress Europe, Dispatches from a Gated Continent, which is a superb book for anybody trying to understand why the immigration issue has gripped Europe. If you're listening to this as a podcast, don't forget to go to our webpages, newbooksnetwork.com. And if you're already listening from the website, then don't forget you can get hold of the audio via everything from iTunes to Stitcher and many places in between. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening. Thank you.